Hey guys, welcome back to Real Time Crime. I'm Hannah. And I'm Javai. And welcome to our month of April category. For this month, we will be focusing on familicides, which is where one perpetrator kills close family members. And we are also excited to announce our weekly episodes, which we already announced on our Instagram. But for those that don't follow us on Instagram, we will be going weekly starting today. We just want to thank you all so much for your continued support and helping us reach this big milestone of already having 5,000 listens. It means the world to us. So thank you. So for today's story, we will be talking about the Lynn family murder. So take it away, Hannah. So in Sydney, Australia, in 2009, a family was murdered in their home in the middle of the night. The family consisted of Min. He was the father, 45 at the time. Yoon was the mother. She was 43. They had two sons, Henry, who was 12, and Terry, who was nine. And as well as Yoon's sister, Irene, she was 39. They lived all together in the same house. They had another daughter as well. Her name was Brenda, but she was not a part of the murder. So Henry and Terry loved to play sports, and Henry also liked learning magic tricks. They liked to play badminton and tennis. Um, Min and Yoon had gone to Sydney from China as students, and they met in Sydney and fell in love and started their family there. Min opened up a a news agency, which is like a like a newspaper stand kind of thing, but it's more of like a store. And um, it was very successful. By 2009, they were making like over a million dollars a year at this shop. It's really impressive. Um, they, he was known to be just like a very friendly, hardworking family man, just wanted to give a better life for his children. Yoon was a loving and devoted mother. She took great care of her children. She also helped out at the shop a lot, as did Irene. They both worked there. Um, So like I said, Henry, he loved to play tennis and badminton. He was said to be like friendly and easy to talk to. And Terry, the younger one, he liked to follow around his sister, Brenda, and um, see what she was up to. But they all loved to read books at the same time and talk about what they were reading. They would play video games together. They were very close siblings. So the family lived in a two-story home, like I said, with Yoon's sister, so the kid's aunt. And Min also had a sister who lived nearby. Her name was Kathy, and Kathy was married to a man named Robert. So Kathy also worked at the news agency, which I kind of like. The whole family seemed to kind of help out and work there, and um, and they all were a very close family. They would have, like, family dinners every week and things like that. So Kathy and Robert had come to Australia. They moved to Melbourne in 2002, and Robert wanted to open up a restaurant. But, you know, just things happened and it ended up the the restaurant was never able to open and it failed before it could start. Back in China, he was an ear, nose and throat specialist, which is very impressive. And so in 2005, they moved to Sydney to be closer to uh, Kathy's brother, Min, and their family and to help out with the news agency. And like I said, the families were very close. They'd help each other out. Um, Kathy and Min lived very, very close to each other. And then their parents lived about 30 minutes away. So everybody's all in the same area. Um, and Robert was a very devoted uncle. He would play tennis and badminton with the boys. He was said to be very loving, very friendly, very involved. 
So in mid-July of 2009, Brenda went with her class to New Chalcedonia. So it was like an overseas flight to go on a school trip and practice their French and stuff. She was nervous about going and, um, but she, but she knew that it wasn't going to be a very long trip. She's like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tough. I'm not going to cry. I'm barely going to say goodbye to everybody. You know, I'm going to be back really soon. They're going to be fine. So this is where she was during the murders. And that's why she is the sole survivor of the family. On Friday, July 17th of 2009, the families were having dinner at the grandparents' house, you know, the half hour away house. And um, it, it was just a very normal dinner. And the grandma said she tried to get Henry, the older son, to sleep over, you know, just have a sleepover at grandma's house. But he was very adamant he wanted to go back home because he had a badminton game in the morning, which, you know, fair enough. So fast forward to the morning of July 18th of that year. Uh, Robert and Kathy happened to be up early that morning. Robert was out cleaning the garage and Kathy ended up receiving a phone call that the news agency hadn't been opened yet. And this is really weird because they were always open early on Saturday mornings because it was the busiest morning in the shopping area that their store was located. And so they, they knew something was wrong. So they immediately go to the news agency and the door is locked. The morning deliveries are still outside of the door. And Again, they just knew something was wrong, so they went straight to Min and Yoon's house to see what was going on. Hopefully, somebody was just sick. Maybe somebody got hurt. Hopefully, that's all it was. So they get to the house, and they find the front door unlocked. And they enter, and they call out, but there was no response. And, you know, they're just looking. Everything seems fine on the first floor. We're looking at, like, a living room, dining room, kitchen kind of area. Everything seems very normal. So they decide to go upstairs. And the first room that they come to is Min and Yoon's room, the parents' room. And it's just described that there was red everywhere. It was all that they could see. There was blood all over the place. We're talking floor, ceiling, ceiling light, covering, you know, outlets and just, just everywhere. So, you know, they immediately start freaking out and they only see one body in the bed, but the body is beaten so badly that it's hard to tell who it is, but they assume that this is Yoon, the mother. Um, at this point, could they tell if, if it was like stabbing or like if they shot them or how? So all the damage done to the bodies were on the face and the head. And the damage was actually so extensive that police at first thought that a blunt force object as well as a gun had been used. But it turned out that everyone was murdered using a hammer-like object. Oh, wow. So I feel like that's why I was able to like make, do so much damage. And why it was so bloody everywhere. This was a very oh. violent and malicious, like there was a lot of hate behind this. Oh, my gosh. So the next room that they go to was Irene's, Yoon's sister, and they noticed that the door handle was bloody and the door was ajar. And again, there's blood everywhere. There's a body in the bed. They continue moving on. Brenda's room is untouched. The door is closed. There's no blood on the handle. So they continue and they know that Brenda's not at home, that she's away. 
So they go to the, the boys' room, the boys' share room, and it's the same thing as the first two rooms, blood on the door handle, blood everywhere, but the bodies aren't in their beds, they're on the floor. So they immediately run downstairs to call for the police, and um, Kathy's the one that made the 911 call, or there they call it 000. Um, and, and you can hear it in the call that she is so completely distraught. She's having a hard time getting the words out and, and trying to describe what she saw. You know, the operator saying, is someone dead? Is there a body? She's like, there is a body. I, you know, I don't think that they're breathing. Was there not a way to call the grandparents? So he did, he did call the grandparents to say like, Hey, something really bad happened. Um, you need to get on a train and come here immediately. Oh, and then he was like, no, never mind. I'm going to come get you. Okay. So the police get there and they don't know what they're walking into. We have no idea if Min is the killer, if Min has been taken by the killer. Um, they know that there's at least one body, but they don't know if there's any more because they were having a really hard time understanding her on the phone. She was so distraught. So like I said, they enter the house and everything's very normal. There's, you know, books and papers and there's like a treadmill in the in the living room and shoes are lined up by the stairs. Everything is very normal, typical home. And they go upstairs and, and what they find is just a very gruesome scene. And like I said, it, it's a hard to determine who is who. So they go to every room and they try to see if anyone's breathing, but no one is. And now their focus turns on trying to find Min. So the grandparents get there and the police inform them that, you know, they, they do in fact have Yoon, Irene, and the two boys, but they still don't exactly know where Min is. And then Kathy says she remembers seeing Min's watch in the bed. So maybe somehow he's under the duvet cover. And so the police go up there and they check. And sure enough, there was a body underneath the cover and it was so badly beaten it was unrecognizable the police you know they, they go and they talk to the neighbors trying to find out what's going on um and the family was taken to the hospital to be treated for shock and you know maybe start some counseling and at the hospital they were informed that min was in fact in the house while this is going on we've got brenda on her school trip Poor baby, like if she wasn't already nervous enough before she left. Yeah, she's 15 years old. She's a oh. sophomore. She's away. She had to take a plane to get to where she is. So her and her friends decide, oh, we're going to look on Facebook and see what our other friends are up to, you know, just, just killing time. And it was there immediately she realized something was going on because people started reaching out to her, asking her if she's okay, if her family's okay, her family's been murdered. Somebody sent her an article and it had her house on the front. You know, that was the main picture was her house. And she's just in complete and utter shock. She's like, this is a cruel joke. There's no way this is happening. She said she just felt like so dizzy and she couldn't think or see straight. So the principal of the school made contact with the teachers and they got her on a plane as soon as possible. And the police and her aunt and uncle met her at the airport and they, they were able to take her to a special room so they could, you know, like grieve in, in peace for a few minutes before they left. The police were able to determine that these murders took place between 2 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. and that the power to the house had been cut. 
So what we know is it seems someone must have used a key to get in because there's no sign of forced entry. Nothing is missing or has been stolen as far as they can tell. And it was definitely a makeshift hammer-like object that was used for the murders, but there's nothing of that sort at the murder scene. There's no weapon found. And like I said, the, the police thought because of the severity of the wounds that, that a gun was used as well as uh, a, you know, a blunt force object, but the autopsy show that it was in fact that they were just beaten to death. And they also listed asphyxia as part of the cause of death for four out of the five. So the most likely situation is that Min and Yoon were killed first as they're like the first bedroom to come up the stairs. And it was obvious that they received the most violent of the attacks. Their room was the worst. Then they were able to determine that Irene was next and then the boys' room. And it just makes sense because that's kind of how it works as you walk down the hallway. Um, and it was also determined that at least one of the boys was awake when the killer entered their room. They had heard all the noise and woke up. Mind you, these are 12 and 10 or 12 and nine. Poor babies. That's so traumatizing. Yeah. Like right before your death. That's, that's so traumatizing. And I can only imagine that the killer was covered in blood entering their room. It's something straight out of a nightmare. I'm sure. Yeah. It's like, yeah, a nightmare. And then you wake up and it's not a nightmare. And then the killer is coming at you. That's horrible. Mm hmm. Like I said, there was there was blood smears found on every door handle except for Brenda's room. Again, her room was completely untouched. Nothing was amiss in there at all. So it's almost like the killer knew that she wasn't there, right? Exactly. Because or was the killer thinking that she was home and spared her for some weird reason? We have two I, possibilities at this point. I got it. So like one one possibility. If if he would have spared her, I feel like he would have at least walked into the room. Or whatever, but he didn't even try opening the room because otherwise there were there would have been blood on the door handle. Mm -hmm. So he completely ignored her room for some odd reason, whether it's like, oh, I know she's not here, or I know her personally, I'm not gonna kill her, or whatever. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. So the smears suggest the killer was wearing some gloves, and they were able to find 24 bloody shoe prints throughout the house. And they were narrowed down to a men's U.S. size eight and a half to ten and a half. So jump forward four days after the murder, um, Kathy and Robert, the aunt and uncle, are being interviewed by the police because they're the ones that found the bodies. Robert gave like short and sometimes confused answers. And he was, you know, speaking in a low and solemn voice as he described what happened. He told them about the family dinner that night at the grandparents' house. He said that they that he then went home with his wife and uh, he watched cricket on the television and then he took a bath around 2 a.m. and went to bed. And then he went on to say, you know, what he found in the house that morning and how he tried to shield Kathy from, from seeing all horrors and just how, how just gruesome it all was. And... Um, He's talking through, you know, the, the series of events, you know, we went to Yoon and Min's room, we went to Irene's room, then we went to the boys' room, and he's able to kind of really speak without any hesitation until he gets to the boys' room, and it honestly sounded like he was, like, choking up, like he might break down. Um, and they were talk they talked to Kathy as well that day, and there was nothing out of the norm for her questioning. Robert and Kathy took custody of Brenda and they took over 
like power of attorney over all of their property and the news agency. Um, and within like a week or so, they were up and running the news agency. The murder shocked the community. I mean, obviously, this is this is such a gruesome and senseless attack that includes two young kids. It just doesn't make sense. And so people spoke about how they'd recently seen or even spoken to the family and you know, they, they placed flowers all over the news agency, things like that. And, um, yeah, they were just shocked. This was such a normal, happy family. It just didn't make sense. The police, you know, they were investigating it thoroughly, but they really just didn't have any leads at least right away. So on August 8th, there was a public funeral that was held for the family members and, um, Brenda joined her grandparents and her aunt and uncle. And, and she, she admitted to, in, in an interview that she at that time was still in just denial and was hoping that she would wake up and it was all just a bad dream. And I just really commend her for, for how she composed herself as she walked behind those caskets, she held her head high and was just very stoic. It was very, I don't know, just very moving to see because I would not have been able to do that. I lost my grandfather to natural causes and I was a wreck. I can't even imagine what she was going through. Like I had said, the police weren't sure if Brenda was spared or if the killer just knew she was away. And what they weren't sure about either was if the boys were a part of the original plan or were they killed because they saw the killer. So through interviews and stuff, at the time, Brenda expressed her gratefulness towards her aunt and uncle, and she called them the next best thing. She said, you know, they took her to school, they made her lunches, they, they took care of her, they helped her out. She felt very grateful that, that she had them for support. So a strike force was created of like local detectives from homicide units uh, about a month later, and they were informed of an arrest. So a man was suspected of committing very violent car thefts that took place near the area where the family lived. And these, these attacks would happen early morning and luck would have it, men witnessed a robbery from like this guy committing a robbery two months prior to the murders. So this was one of the leads that the police really went for, but as they investigated it, they realized that there was just no connection. It was just a coincidence that men saw the, the robbery happen. So the police were under immense pressure to, to investigate this, as this was one of the largest homicides in the area at the time, and really it shook not just that community, but the whole country. They had a few persons of interest, but none of these leads were going anywhere. So they decided to turn their efforts on another lead, that the killer was a member of the family. And I think you and I and the listeners are probably already getting to that point of, well, it's got to be somebody who knew what was going on. They knew the layout of the house. They knew where the power was located to turn it off. They knew where to find the spare key or even already had one. And there was still something fishy about Brenda. Why was her room not touched? And the shoe prints show that the killer acted alone. Um, you know, it was the same shoe print throughout the house. So they knew that it was one person. And so all this turns their focus on Robert, the uncle. And he, he also started acting a bit odd after the murders. And as he's taking ownership of these different properties and um, 
and guardianship over Brenda. So after the murders, the grandparents were in need of public housing because they had been evicted from their home. So before the murders, Min was in the process of buying their house so that they wouldn't have to, you know, pay for it. He could take care of his parents. And so when Robert assumed power of attorney over Min and Yoon's estate, he gained ownership of the home. So he was the one that evicted his in-laws. Why would you evict your in-laws? He didn't care to say, hey, I have this home that is not occupied. Let me just let them stay there. Like, that's so yeah. inhumane. It was literally the home that they lived in. Like, they already lived in the home. That's so inhumane. He, he kicked them to the streets. Mm-hmm. So the thought is that by evicting them, it reduced the options for Brenda. If her grandparents didn't have a house for her to go to, she would have to stay with the aunt and uncle. So the police are very suspicious of Robert, as we all are at this point. And they figured that Brenda was safe enough for now, because if he wanted to kill her, he would have already killed her. I mean, we're talking a couple months after, we're almost at a year after the murders took place. So yeah, if he wanted to kill her, he would have already killed her, you know? So the police began a six-month surveillance inside of Robert's home. We got like really teeny tiny cameras and they place them around the house and they're, they've got audio and video. Yeah. Does he know about these? No. Okay. So it's just the wife that's in on it? I don't think the wife was in on it either. I think it's, it's secret. Like the police are oh, okay. Okay. keeping it a secret. Yeah. Okay. Cause they're like, I watched the, the video from one of them and it seems like what they called them like pin needle cameras like they're really really small and it seemed like it was shoved in like the corner of a a, a, like where the walls meet the ceiling like that was the view in the kitchen at least so again he's he's acting very weird right so the murders take place in july of 2009 in march of 2010 robert decides to call the police to correct something that he had previously said how many times do we see this happen where somebody calls the police to correct themselves and it just turns their attention right on them? And it's so like it, it's been so many months now. Like, why now? Why now? Exactly. Like you could have just let it go if you're innocent. Right. And this is the most tedious thing to correct, too. Like he should have just kept his mouth shut because this makes no sense to correct. I mean, it makes sense because he's backtracking, but. So he wanted to correct in a statement he had previously made that he said he saw five bodies in the house at first. But really what he meant to say was four or five because they weren't sure where Min was. Why are you correcting that now? Because Min's body was the one under the duvet, right? Like exactly. The one. So yeah. in, in his like hindsight, he knew there were five bodies in the in the house mm-hmm. but when him and and his wife were looking they only saw four right and we've got to figure at least an hour because it's a half hour to pick up the grandparents and a half hour back and it was after the grandparents got to the scene that kathy was like oh wait i think i saw min's watch in the bed yeah huh he just yeah. like turned himself in basically <laughs> exactly so this completely <laughs> strengthened the police's suspicion of him and and they thought that he was suspicious at the crime scene at first, too. When when they were in the mindset of, well, maybe Min is on the run, maybe Min was the killer, they 
automatically just assumed that Robert would probably know where Min was. Like he was just acting very strange. Like he could be in on this. They were also convinced that he told Kathy about the duvet to look under the duvet. Like he was like, hey, tell the police to look under the duvet. Um, On March 16th of 2010, they were both called in for like another set of questioning. And so they start with Robert and they're asking him things like, do you know who did it? Have you given any more thought as to who might have done it? You know, like, do you have any ideas of leads for us? Why could this have happened to such a, a loving and happy and involved in the community, you know, type of family? And he's got no answers. So in Kathy's interview, I mentioned the thing about the duvet because that's what they started their interviewing with was they were asking her about the duvet and, and had Robert like led her to suggest the duvet to the police. And she was adamant. She was like, no, no, no. I just had a feeling that Min was there. Robert didn't say anything. So they show her the shoe prints from the scene and they say that they've narrowed it down to one of three models of an A6 tennis shoe. And then they ask her, what kind of shoes does Robert wear? So a few days later on their surveillance cam, specifically the one in the kitchen I was talking about, they hear and see Robert cutting something up and placing it into, he's got like a 10 gallon bucket full of water. And he's putting these these cut up pieces of something into this bucket of water. And upon upon further inspection, they can see that he's cutting up a box for a six shoes u.s men's size nine and a half and then he picks up the bucket walks to the bathroom and flushes it down the toilet to get rid of the evidence he's flushing shoes down the toilet is my first concern <laughs> cardboard box <laughs> oh okay okay cardboard, the box. cardboard box and was putting it in water so that it would start to get oh gotcha. okay so then by the time he flushed it it all went down and they caught this all on camera. So him trying to get rid of the evidence is just so funny. Like they caught it on camera anyway. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh and I mean, God. this doesn't point to, hey, you are the killer. But it's like, why are you cutting up a box of A6 shoes that matches the size after we just told your wife we're suspicious of your shoes? Yeah. And I think you said the the size frame was like an eight and a half to ten and a half and it's size. right in the middle. Right. Come on. Yeah, that, that really got me when I was like, his shoe size was in the middle of what they assumed it could be, really? All right. So the police also knew that Robert had been up early that morning cleaning his garage. You remember I mentioned that? When Kathy got the call, he was already up cleaning the garage. So they go and check out the garage and everything seems really clean until they move this dresser drawers and they find a, it's so small a tiny little stain and it's a red stain. So they decide to get it sampled. I'm not even joking. Like this is, it's not even as long as an inch. It was two centimeters long. It's a tiny, tiny stain. So they move the dresser. They put one of those like evidence markers down and they label it as stain number 91. And they sent this, this, Sample is so complex that they had to send it from Australia to a special lab in Pennsylvania. And they kept Robert under surveillance during this time. 
what's important to note is that this sample is so complex that if this murder had taken place a few years prior, they would have written it off as too complex to determine what was going on in it. That's why they've got to send it to this specialty lab. And it took a long time to break it down because the technology just wasn't there. So like I said, they keep Robert under surveillance, but it got out to the public that Robert was their main subject or their, their main suspect, sorry. And, um, and people were definitely talking about this. So Brenda was interviewed and she, she just kept stressing, like it wasn't him. It couldn't be, he's such a loving and devoted uncle. Uh, and he's so distraught that, that people could even think that it's him. It, it just doesn't make any sense. There's no way it's him. You know, it took a while for the lab to send the results. Um, but it comes back that stain number 91 contained DNA from four out of the five victims. And they were able to also match this stain to a stain on one of the mattresses from the crime scene, which is perfect. So just another like little random thing to throw in there was Brenda was really close with the principal of her school, especially after all this happening, the principal tried to keep in touch with her and she, she wanted to make sure Brenda was doing okay and, and try to help her as much as she could. And so one day she was having lunch with Robert and Brenda and she just noticed that Robert was like very physically close to her a lot of the time. And he was very firm with her and seemed as though he was like trying to force her to say something. And she just found this really, really odd. So she, she voiced her concerns to the police. But aside from that, there was really nothing that she could do. And she said she went home that night and her husband asked her how, you know, the lunch went. And she goes, I think I just had lunch with the murderer. She just had this gut feeling that he was a very dangerous person. And I felt what I thought was really interesting in that was, so I was watching this interview and she's talking about this. And then the interview cuts to the interviewer telling Brenda what the principal had said that, you know, she went home that night and she thought she had lunch with the murderer. And Brenda was like, she thought that then, like, I didn't even think that then, like, I thought that this was just my loving uncle. I had no idea. I would have never suspected. She's just insane. So on May 5th of 2011, Robert was arrested for the murders for all five of them. And he chose not to appear when they read the charges and he chose not to apply for bail at that time either. He did end up applying a lot afterwards and they've been denied every time and they were denied every time. So the strike force enlisted another inmate at the prison where Robert was being held to try and catch Robert confessing. They got him like a tape recorder and everything and they got him confessing quite a bit that's the dumbest thing like when <laughs> I think we've heard this several times where they always like get someone like an inmate and they try to get the other person to confess and they always fall for it like we're I don't on, yeah we're only on episode 17 of our podcast and this is already a recurring theme it's happened I think like at least two times yeah <laughs> so at one of the times when he applied for bail again and was denied the judge also mentioned that a jury might not find enough evidence for conviction postponed three different times over the course of about seven years it was on the fourth trial that we finally get a conviction at this first trial they're playing the recorded conversations between robert and the other inmate and it reveals Robert admitting that he bought a hammer from a store that he knew didn't have surveillance cameras. And he said that he hid it after the murders and could still access it, 
but was concerned there might be surveillance of him hiding it. So it seems he hid it in a place where there could have been a camera, but he wasn't sure if he was seen. He said he also thought about planting a different hammer in someone else's house to like pin it on them, but he just never got around to it. And he said he easily controlled his victims because of his martial arts training and showed uh, the pressure point on his neck where he subdued the victims, supposedly. And he said that he also subdued Kathy that night so that he could leave the house without her knowing. He spoke very negatively about the Lynn family during these recorded conversations with the inmate. And it kind of showed that he was like, like kind of jealous of, of the family's success, which makes sense. He tried to start this restaurant and it failed. His brother-in-law has this really successful news agency that, you know, the whole family gets to work at. His kids are doing well. You know, he's just very jealous. So during these conversations, he also tells the inmate that he was friends with a cop who was corrupt and he would plant, he promised to plant DNA, like someone else's DNA on the murder weapon. And so Robert and this inmate are making plans to get this cop to help him plant the evidence. And the cop is an undercover cop. Brenda took the stand during this trial to give her testimony and she revealed that there was ongoing sexual assault being committed to her by Robert, not only after the murders when he moved when she moved into his house, but before the murders too. I need a second to just <laughs> like now everything makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like we already had some like ideas beforehand, but now number one, he knew she wasn't home because he knew that she was at school, and number two, even if she would have been home, he wouldn't have killed her. In my opinion. I don't think he would have either because of the assault. I think this was the prime opportunity to take out number one, his frustration on men for his successes. And number two, to get rid of her family so that he could do as he pleased and have legal guardianship over her and evicted the grandparents from their home so that she wouldn't have another place to run to. Yeah. So she brings this up at trial because she still truly believes that her uncle is innocent. That's so sad. I wonder if, if it, if this is genuine or if, if, if he's like manipulated her or like gaslit her so much into thinking that he's innocent. Yeah. I, I don't know. And so this information along with the tapes from the inmate were just so because of the addition of this information, they considered it a mistrial. They needed to give the defense time to build a defense against these shocking revelations. They also made sure to suppress this information about the recordings from the inmate as well as the sexual assault against Brenda until the next trial. So it didn't get out to the public. The next trial began in August of 2014. They were able, they, um, they presented the DNA evidence, the inmate evidence, the sexual assault evidence to the jury and the jury, you know, they were able to keep everything under wraps, which is great. The prosecutors argued that there was more force than necessary used in these murders, which arguably, yeah, and that it was driven by bitterness towards the family as well as sexual interest in his niece, Brenda. So interestingly, Robert wasn't charged for the sexual assault at any point, 
but her testimony was accepted as evidence. So at the very least, we have that. And I don't think that he was charged over the sexual assault because I didn't see anywhere that she pressed charges. So that could have been part of it. And sometimes I think they they want like evidence, not like her testimony isn't enough, but if, if there wasn't any evidence at the time, I don't think they could have um, like charged him with, you know, quote unquote, enough evidence. Yeah, I agree with you. So the grandmother also took the stand. Well, both the grandparents did. The grandmother also took the stand um, to say she believed Henry would have stayed that night at her house if it weren't for Robert being adamant that they had plans to play badminton in the morning. So Henry had that badminton game in the morning, but it was with his uncle. And his uncle was like, well, you know, we've got our game. You don't want to miss that. So it's like he wanted to make sure all five of those family members would be home so that he could murder all of them. So then the grandfather took the stand um, and he said that he and his wife lived with Robert and Kathy for a time after they were evicted. And he said one night uh, he got up to use the bathroom and he saw Robert standing near Brenda's room and Brent and Robert was startled like he was caught and went to his room. So in September of 2014, this trial, so this is the second one now, it was um, postponed because the judge got really sick. And then it was picked up in February of 2015. So five and a half years after the murders, this is the third murder trial being started. So we start all over from the top, um, you know, giving all the evidence. This went on for 10 months and it concluded in November of 2015. The jury took 19 days to deliberate. And on December 1st, they said that they couldn't reach a verdict which means that now a fourth trial has to take place. Are you freaking kidding me? How can you not reach a verdict on this? I don't understand. Oh my God. I, okay. I am thinking it's been five and a half years. Brenda is now about 20 or 21. The Mm -hmm. trauma this poor girl has gone through in five years, four trials. This is, it's insane. Mm -hmm. Like it's so insane. It gets better because This whole time, Robert has been in custody, this five and a half years. The judge decided to release him on bail because, number one, he's been in jail for five years and we have yet to really have a court case against him. And they decided that um, from a report that they received from a psychologist, they said that he was struggling mentally and he wouldn't be able to withstand another trial if he stayed in prison the whole time. Um, The judge felt that he wasn't a flight risk. And they weren't concerned about him, like, possibly intimidating or harassing any witnesses. His bail had 17 conditions, including surrendering his passport, wearing an ankle monitor, and reporting to police three times a day. And he was only allowed to leave his house for medical or legal appointments. So, but still. It sounds strict enough to, like, keep him confined. Yeah. So finally, the fourth trial begins in June of 2016, seven years after the murders took place. So this trial goes on for a long time as well. And he was finally taken into custody in December of 2016. They, you know, they put him back in jail. Um, And in January, they finally found him guilty of all five murders. To this day, he claims innocence. And as far as I can tell, Kathy does too. She's stopped speaking to the reporters as much. 
but the last thing that she's really known to have said publicly was she still supports her husband that he's still innocent it doesn't make sense so he received five life sentences consecutively no parole so he will be in jail for the rest of his life good yeah. <laughs> um his most recent appeal was in february of 2021 and it was denied which is good i'm pretty sure all his appeals are going to keep getting denied i mean I, I don't think we've covered a case where they file an appeal and then it gets approved or turned over. So, yeah, which it's just very good. But yeah, so as you had mentioned, Brenda was 15 at the time the murders took place. The trials took seven years, seven and a half really, to be completed because it was in January of 2017 when they finally reached a verdict. Um, so she, she had said after the trial, you know, during all this time, she learned to drive. She got her first job. She finished high school. She was accepted to college and all without her family. And not only did she lose two brothers, she was very close to and a loving set of parents and a devoted aunt, but she also lost her relationship with her aunt, Kathy, because she was very close to her aunt, especially right after the murders took place when she moved in with them. She relied on her for support and things like that. And, and Kathy sided with her husband and obviously Brenda wasn't going to side with them. So she lost that as well. Brenda received a great deal of support from her friends and her family and people online. Um, all the sales of family properties went to her and funds were raised to ensure she could complete her schooling, which was really great. And um, during interviews after the trials had taken place, during an interview after the murders, she kept referring to her parents and her brothers and her aunts um, in the present tense. And she did that because she was hoping that they're still with her and that they're still watching over her. Um, she remained very close to the principal. She still keeps in contact with her, which I think is really lovely. And the principal said, quote, she taught me that love is the most important thing end quote. She speaks so highly of Brenda and she's like spoke about how, you know, I hope one day that, you know, I can attend her wedding and watch her, you know, just continue to grow into this wonderful human being who puts so much good back into the world. And this case, I don't know what our big takeaway could be. So the message that I'm going to walk away from this case with is Brenda's undying faith in hope and love she tries to live her life in everything that she does to make her family proud of her in hopes that they're you know still with her and she said she wants to show kindness to others because of the impact of the kindness that she had been shown and how that helped her so I think that that's the beautiful message to take away from from this just awful tragic gruesome unnecessary tragedy I think it's always sad to see like just one single survivor and then having to just cope with the the grief of, you know, like losing your entire family, but then they turn it into something beautiful and, and it's like inspiring and, and just beautiful for everyone else to see. Yeah. So I think, I, I feel like that's more than enough. Just like she, she grieved however she did, but then she also turned it into something beautiful. That's how I feel too. And that's all I have for today's case.
So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us, and we will be back next week with our next case. As always, don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook at Real Time Crime.